Hello, and welcome to the TES News Podcast. I'm John Roberts, and I'm joined by our reporting team, Matilda Martin, Rodri Morgan, and Callum Mason. So we're here at the end of another unprecedented week in British politics. Yesterday, Liz Truss resigned, becoming the shortest serving prime minister in British political history. And that leaves us with the prospect of a second leadership election, a third prime minister in as many months, and incredibly for our sector, the prospect of a sixth education secretary in a little over a year. Um, whilst this is like dramatic TV and engrossing for everyone in the Westminster bubble, it's less entertaining for our sector. And we've been trying to look at what this kind of endless political hiatus means for schools. Rodri, you've put together a piece for us on that. What have school leaders been telling you? What are the kind of the main issues that are coming up? Sure. So, I mean, I think, John, the main thing to highlight is ongoing turmoil is the is the key thing to take away from what I've been finding out from school leaders. Obviously, as you mentioned, there are three key tenets to what this uncertain political situation seems to mean for the education sector. And those are the promise of industrial action coming up soon, the ongoing crisis of funding brought on by the energy cost pressures, as well as already a very underfunded sector. And there is also legislative pressure to drive through uh, several policies and bills that are really, really key and influential to the sector, which are now in complete limbo. And as a result, MAT leaders are quite rightly uh, in the dark and quite scared, I would say, is probably the, is probably the tone. Sure. Well, let's, um, let's unpick that a little bit. Um... You mentioned the, the threat of industrial action. That's been something that's been talked about for ages, but feels like it's inching ever closer to reality. Matilda, you've been following this for us. What, what's the latest in terms of what all the main unions have been saying? Yeah, definitely everything is coming to a head at the moment. Um, I think over the last two weeks, I'd say, um, the problems have really started to build up um, for, for the DfE. Um, and it's difficult to see how, you know, they are going to avoid strike action in a way, um, just in the way that politics is going at the moment with all the chaos um, and the uncertainty over who will be education secretary, you know, for the next few months. Um, so we've got Nazowet, um, who are sending out ballots for, for strike action later this month. We've got NEU also doing the same. Um, and also NEHT, um, they haven't set the dates yet, but they will be sending out ballots uh, shortly for also for strike action. And I think, I think that's a key one. That's the first time in their 125 year history um, that they'll be balloting their members for strike action over pay. Um, and just from looking into past strike action, past industrial action, speaking to, to people who have been in the sector for a while, it does seem like things are different this time. You know, we've had walkouts before, we've had strike action before. Um, but the feeling I'm getting from speaking to people, this is a radically different situation. You know, in, in the past, we've had, you know, an approaching economic crisis kind of stalling any further strike action. Um, whereas now we're, we're already in an economic crisis. So factors that have maybe prevented uh, school staff, teachers, support staff from wanting to walk out before, um, you know, that that isn't really a factor this time. Um, and I think especially with the entirety of the public sector gearing up um, for strike action, it, it does feel like there's a, a collective feeling of, of a need for change 
Um, so yeah, that's something for the DFE definitely to, to to need to keep an eye on. Absolutely. It does seem to me that whoever comes in, and we're assuming there will be a new education secretary, there's kind of like they're coming in towards the end of a crisis that's been escalating for a while. Um, and had there been one education secretary in place over the course of the year, there might have been more more kind of connection with the sector, but there were risks kind of coming in cold to crisis. I think the thing that underpins all of this is the funding pressures that are on schools, both for the fact that they've had a, a pay rise announced for teachers that isn't funded, and also, as, as we've mentioned, the kind of the rising cost crisis. Callum, you've been on top of this all year for us. Can you kind of talk us through what the, what the main pressures are for schools and what they're, what they're saying now? Yeah, so the, the difficulty here, I think, stems back to, to last year. There was a spending settlement that was agreed at the spending review last October. And although that looked, perhaps some would say, okay at the time, I think with the massive inflation that we've all seen in our day-to-day lives over the past year, that money is now not worth as much as it was, if that makes sense. So it's the same amount in cash terms, but it it pays for less um, in the sense that if you've got catering as a school, um, that's probably going to cost you more because goods have gone up. Um, we've seen staff pay rises and they were beyond what was expected and schools have had to fund them. So so that's cost more. And then we've seen things as well like energy price increases. So schools are under a lot of financial pressure. I think whoever we've got in power at the moment, whoever whoever it's going to be, it doesn't seem like at the moment that the settlement that the DfE was given uh, and that's allocated by the Treasury is going to go up. It just doesn't seem like that's on the cards. I think what is more on the cards, really worryingly for school leaders, is that it might go down further. And I think the chaos that we've seen in the past few weeks, the reason that that's been so worrying school leaders is we have seen so many different answers on on where that, where that efficiency savings, where that funding cut is going to come from and if there's going to be funding cuts at all. So a few weeks ago, under, under Liz Truss's government, we saw the Chief Secretary of the Treasury or the, the former Chief Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Chris Phil, say that there were going to be spending efficiencies, which is sort of code for possible cuts. We then saw Liz Truss in the House Commons at PMQs say, no, no, absolutely commit to keeping spending as it is. And then in, in recent days, we've seen the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, suggest that there could have to be efficiencies overall. And whoever we get as a new leader, that might change again. So I think if you're a school leader at the moment, you're already under immense financial pressure and you've got sort of hearsay and, and to and fro in about whether you might be put under further financial pressure. And I think that is really worrying. And I think what schools really just need in the next week is whoever comes in as leader needs to sort of say from the start what is going to go on with funding. And, and hopefully we'll hear that at the budget in two weeks' time. I think it's Monday, the 31st of October. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that strikes me is that even before this kind of, if you wind back to like the very beginning of Liz Truss's era, era, I probably can't, can you call six weeks an era? Um, there was already kind of unrest in the sector and a feeling that the government had been on hold over the summer because of the whole kind of drama around Boris Johnson's downfall and the kind of a holding government. And they'd had that unfunded teacher pay rise announced going into the summer holidays. And there's a real sense of anger whenever I've met people at events that the kind of sector's concerns were going unheard. And I think the, the endless crisis means that it's continuing to go unheard. I think there's a real risk that, like, you know, we've had really, really strongly worded letters from all of the main organisations and dire warnings about viability of schools. And yet I still don't get the impression that education's anywhere near the top of the political agenda. 
Um, and then the, the next bit that kind of, I guess we ought to look at, and Rodri alluded to this at the start, is that about four education secretaries ago, the DfE launched a white paper that was supposed to launch a schools bill, which had plans for new regulation of mats and, and various other bits. And that already ran into difficulties, now on hold. Rodri, what are people saying about that and about the kind of the, the uncertainty that we um that the surrounding the government's whole political agenda on education, I think. Sure. So way with you cast your minds way back when to to May when Nadim Zahawi, then education secretary, um, brought forth this this, like you said, this wide-ranging schools bill. Um, a month after that, large swathes of it, which covered the regulatory aspect of multi-academy trusts, were scrapped. And it's been a bill that has been quite controversial uh, within the sector for a couple of months, mostly because it tries to deal with too much all at once was the feedback that I was getting from people who I've been speaking to. More recently, the bill's parliamentary progress has met another obstacle in that it is awaiting its third reading at the House of Lords, uh, which is typically where members will get a chance to tidy up a bill and concentrate on making sure the eventual law is effective and workable. From people that I was speaking to, it seemed that it was going to, it, it was indeed going to be scrapped by Education Secretary Kip Malthouse uh, yesterday prior to Liz Truss's um, resignation announcement. However, that was then U-turned on by, by the DfE subsequently. Um, and as it stands, the school's bill remains. Now, what that means uh, for MAT leaders is, is like you say, John, just real uncertainty in terms of how they approach governing not only their own, own multi-academy trust, but also how they see other schools within within MAT landscape. So, you know, I spoke to um, former MAT leader and founder of the Reach 2 Academy Trust, Sir Steve Lancashire, uh, who said that the bill, you know, it's it's no real surprise that the bill is, has ended up where it is because it just tried to as I said at the start, deal with far too much all at once, trying to bring in uh, Ofsted regulation and registers to do with children's attendance and that kind of thing. And one of the one of the former special advisors who I spoke to um, leading up to this week essentially said it would make far more sense for the government to try and break this down into far more digestible parts, um, to try and push through essential parts of legislation, uh, which would make you know, the parts that they want to pass through quicker. Um, and I think, you know, the, the key takeaway with where the schools bill sits now is obviously we're heading into another leadership contest within the Conservative Party. I get the impression that over the last couple of months, the schools bill has been consistently shelved. And given what is going on at the minute, outside of the fact that we're possibly facing down a general election and a new Conservative leader, you know, with everything with foreign foreign trouble still with the war in Ukraine, the cost pressures that Callum was alluding to, real the real potential this time of industrial action from teachers that alluded, uh, that Matilda was talking about. I just can't see this bill being a formal priority for any government anytime soon. And the funny thing is, is that it appears that the only way to withdraw it officially, because it's it's currently in parliamentary due process, is to make some kind of statement to the Commons, uh, the likes of which Kit was meant to, Mr. Malthouse was meant to make yesterday. But um, but yeah, I think for the minute it's completely up in the air. And as a result, Matt leaders are really considering 
you know, what this means for them, whether they might be heads of a trust trying to join another multi-academy trust, whether they're looking to bring more schools under their umbrella as well, how they're going to be governing, governing themselves in the future. And I think crucially what it means for their finances going forward, not only in the long term, but also in the real short term as the winter comes. Absolutely. I think, um, I think one thing you said there that really jumps out to me is the the prospect of a general election. I think whilst ever it gets ever more politically kind of um, turbulent, you feel like a government is on a kind of a shorter term and shorter term footing and looking for quick wins. And the scores bill was quite a kind of a sort of a regulatory bill. And it just, um, it's not a quick political win for anyone, mm. but it is nevertheless something that school leaders need sorting. We have a kind of a we were given at the start of the year the sense that the government wanted to move to an entirely matter system and with a new regulatory framework. And now it's like, well, is that what they think? Is that what schools can expect? But like everything, it seems like we're going to have to wait for things to calm down a little bit in Westminster before we get any progress on any of this. Um, I think that's probably a nice, nice point for us to end. Um, it looks like the twists and turns are going to keep on coming. So stay tuned next week and keep an eye on test.com for all the latest news and analysis. So just remains for me to say thanks to Matilda, Rodri and Callum and we'll speak again soon. Next up, we'll be hearing from our analysis team, Dan Worth and Gronya Hallahan. They'll be looking at our analysis of how a falling birth rate in the UK is going to have big implications for schools at a time when they're already under financial pressure. Welcome to the TES analysis part of the podcast. It's Gronya Hallahan, senior analyst with Mr. Dan Worth. Hello. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dan. Not a problem. And we're going to talk really about babies, aren't we? A lot of our, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a baby themed. Well, it, it, yeah, it is, isn't it? I suppose if you put it like that. Um, yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. So why am I saying this? Because the first piece we're going to talk about today is about the declining um, birth rate, the population dip that we're experiencing and how that's going to affect primary schools. Of course, we have had an increase, which is, and the bold years going through secondary at the moment, but what we've got incoming is less children and what will that mean for schools? So it's a, this is a really in-depth piece with lots and lots of information in it. I'm going to give you such an easy job, Dan. Could you summarise it for us? Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, as you, as you say, though, it is, it's very much that you can look at data from the ONS, which is where the story sort of started, which shows that there is a declining uh, fertility rate in terms of birth rate, which, as you said, had reached a peak a while ago and that, that, that bulge is working its way through a system. But actually what's coming next is, is a drop and when you consider that with fewer pupils coming into schools, it means the funding schools receive will reduce as a result. And the piece begins with a person at the uh, Southern Council explaining how they had to close a school because of declining population meant they hadn't have enough pupils in the school to make it financially viable. This isn't some sort of arcane esoteric thing. This is very much happening right now. And so, it's, and it's only going to get worse. So that, like, we, we can, you know, the numbers show it. There's no sort of hiding from this. You know, there's, there's DFE data showing the projections for the amount of pupils that will be in primary and secondary schools. And, you know, it's going to drop by half a million between 2023 and 2028 in primary. And that will obviously then feed into secondary. And even secondary is already on a dip down to 3.1 million from a current high of around 3.2 million. So, you know, it's, it's all coming down. That's the bottom line here. And what's that going to mean for schools? And, and there's a lot of people, you know, John Morgan wrote this piece, really interesting, lots of data, lots of, um, you know, people talking about it, but it's very, it's a very real piece. Like, you know, you don't, don't sort of, it's not hiding behind the numbers. It, it makes it clear that this is something that schools and school leaders need to be aware of and think about because you are going to see fewer pupils coming in. And what does that mean for your funding models? Does that mean more mergers? Does it mean having to cut workforce and, or as some people say, should the government start thinking about 
whichever government that might be, what, how the funding system works. Is it right to do on a kind of per pupil basis? And some of the suggestions of things that might happen that uh, that we talked mm. about in the article. Um, one of them is merges. So what might that look like? How would that work? Yeah, well, I think that's something we're kind of seeing potentially anyway with with multi academy trusts and how they merge and bring schools in with them. And you know, if you're all kind of if you've got a bigger pool of money and that you'll get you're receiving, it's easier to make that go further if you're you know economies of scale and all that. So I suppose the idea is, well, that's only going to accelerate that trend, potentially have mergers, because if you've got, let's say, if you come together, you can you can make your resources go further. Um, but again, there are other people say it might just mean that, you know, you can, you can, merging is not an easy thing. So I think it's Kathy Painter's, that's not like the kind of the, an easy, quick fix solution. You know, that's actually something that has to be thought about very carefully. And it could also mean, um, this isn't her saying, this is more just comes up in the piece, people saying, it might mean redundancies because if you have too many staff, ultimately that's that's the only way you can make your money back. Um, which, given the world we're in right now, it's another slightly bleak story. And I apologise; this wasn't my intention when I commissioned this was to have another sort of worrying story for, for for school leaders. But you can't escape the fact that it's happening, and so it's better to be aware of this and have a plan than it to suddenly arrive in three years' time and you sort of think, "Hang on a minute, we're we're thirty kids short, we're a hundred children short." You know, and where's that money coming from? There are some other suggestions in there too, which feel less bleak and um, a bit more hopeful. I really like the one about how what we need to do is um, think about keeping schools open and instead of looking at minimum numbers of students, going just for smaller class sizes. And, you know, as a teacher, as a parent, this, this really appeals because, of course, we know that smaller class sizes are very popular with teachers and with parents. And that might be something that, you know, could be a solution to this problem because, of course, ultimately, yet the population is is going down now. But there could be a time in the future where it starts to grow again, right? Absolutely, as you say, there there are positive solutions here, and the idea of just like maintain funding levels, but have smaller class sizes. Well, and maybe we, that's what, exactly what we do need to help tackle the pandemic's impact. You know, we've seen this week with Progress Eight data and, and so attainment and so forth that. You know, there was obviously a, a, a decline there and, and a sort of gap, particularly between disadvantaged and advantaged or non-disadvantaged pupils. And so, you know, smaller class sizes give pupils coming through the system more time to learn again. Why not make, make it a positive? But there is no easy answer here and there's no quick fix. And it's it's one of many, many problems facing the sector. It's a few years away. So like many things, it probably just get, get ignored about until it actually arrives on the doorstep. Let's just hope by then we may have some more stability in the system generally to actually then respond to it then than right now, which I think, you know, right now we'd just be happy with a bit of stability on all fronts. We would. Okay, so bouncing across now to another baby-related thing, we're talking about maternity pay and why uh, this, we've got a story from a, a trust where they made some radical changes to their maternity pay policy. And it's, um, it's written by Wayne Norrie and Abby Bayford. And they're the, Abby Bayford is the executive director of Greenwood Academies, and she explains about how the uh, the maternity pay policy came about. This is a really interesting piece, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I should say she's executive director of their Institute of Teaching. And the reason I make that clear is because that's why, in a way, that's why this all started, this story, because she was, uh, well, she is pregnant. She saw this job and thought, wow, that's my dream job. But then she looked at the policies and was like, well, actually, if you move job and you start a new job and you're not there for that long, you're not entitled to effectively almost any maternity pay. And that makes it made it financially impossible for her to consider applying because she just thought, well, I can't afford to take that level of pay cut. And how and, and obviously that felt deeply unfair. But what's really sort of admirable, you might say, is that she then emailed Wayne, who's the CEO, and said, 
you know, did you know this? Is this right? Is there anything you can do about it? And he he said himself it was a, it was an eye opener to realize this. He hadn't realized this was the case that you know there was this this sort of this penalty you might say for being pregnant and seeing your dream job, and didn't think that was right. And so he looked into it from an HR and legal point of view. So that found out there was nothing to stop them, you know, actually offering a policy that meant you could join while pregnant and go on maternity leave quite soon after doing and receive the usual benefits that you should. So he did that, and Abby got the job, and she, you know, she will now benefit from these these um these these maternity pay policies. And obviously, the last piece of the article talks about how they then sort of prepared for the fact she can arrive and leave quite quickly. I think that's probably something that any school would have or trust would have to think about because I think the the idea is correct and, and the right thing, but it means you'd have to start thinking a bit more like, well, you know, do we have to immediately bring someone in on maternity cover? Can we can we make it work? In a different way, that's going to be different for different contexts. But what's overall overall here, which I think comes through, is that it's actually quite a long-term strategic and clever view on this situation. Because if you've got talented people who are being put off to apply for jobs that may just disappear, shall we say, for nine months for the best reason possible to go on maternity leave, but they're going to come back and they're going to then maybe work for you for five years, 10 years, who knows, if it's a good fit and a good job, you're, you're actually investing in your organization. Yes, you may have to sort of Short term, not have that person around, but long term, you're going to benefit. Whereas if you just deny them that opportunity, well, everyone's losing out on that. And that's why this piece, when we came across this story, I really wanted them to write for us because it just seemed like these are the kind of innovations. We, and, you know, and they should, I think Abby herself says she wishes it wasn't innovative. It should just be the norm, but it isn't. So we need to push for change. And that's obviously what, and it can be achieved. And that's why, again, to Wayne's credit, he says, I didn't know about this, but I didn't think it was right. I looked into it. We've made the change. You know, it shows you can be forward and proactive on these things. I love this because it's such a very specific example of why we need to have female leaders in schools and why when but having women included in decision making processes and and talking about maternity and talking about paternity leave um makes such a difference because you can once people see how how small changes like this can have a big impact upon the whole school, the whole trust. It's, you know, it's, it's really great. Things that are really important to, to female teachers when they're thinking about changing jobs and they're thinking about, you know, changing schools. It's, it's an attractive policy to know that a school's got in place. Definitely, definitely. And I think it shows, you know, like I see that I would imagine it would have a long-term net benefit, not just for this kind of job, but for that trust, you know, to show how you know, they're progressive policies and it might spur others to do similar things. And we should say, Gronya, it did also, it has sort of kickstarted you looking at a wider piece about, other trusts and schools that have adopted progressive policies because we thought you know we know there are problems in this area do we know that you know maternity pay and paternity and all these sort of things can come with lots of issues but rather than kind of focusing on the problems which have been well documented and you know rightly so let's look for what people are doing to solve it like this story and, and others are out there and i know we won't give the game away too much but you you have been talking to people and hearing about other examples of good practice and again i think that's important isn't it, to share that so other schools can go actually we can make it work. We can't just hide behind the kind of, oh, well, this is the way it always is. And actually, no, look, they're doing it. Let's think what we can do. Oh, my gosh. And the thing that really strike and struck me since I've been talk talking to people about this is how much experience varies from school to school and even within schools, between departments and between teachers. And, you know, it's, it's something that if you have a policy on something, if it's something that everybody can expect and has, an, has a right to expect, that makes a massive difference to a school and how those teachers that I'm talking to speak about their schools and when they've taught in a number of schools how they're treated in one versus another. Whew. Yeah, it's, um, it's something that I think 
school leaders cannot underestimate the importance of. Definitely. Well, we'll look out, look forward to seeing your article on that soon. Thank you very much. Right. Well, I think that's everything we've covered today. Thank you very much, Dan, for your helpful insights and your thoughts there. Not a problem. And that's it for us this week. Thanks, Dan and Gonya. That was really interesting to listen to and a really, really important topic. Well, that's us for this week. We'll stay tuned next week and keep an eye on Tes.com for all the latest news and analysis. Thank you.